Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. On this podcast, we often discuss how sports are woven into the fabric of both life and business. That importance spans across sports, countries, cultures, and genders. On the show today, Adam has an incredible interview with someone who has a passion for growing women's sports and providing women opportunities to compete in sports they love while earning money to support their life goals. Sherry Kempf. Sherry has long been at the forefront of women's sports, specifically fast pitch softball, as a player, instructor, an industry marketing representative, a television commentator, and as the commissioner of National Pro Fast Pitch. A four-time national champion and three-time Hall of Fame inductee, Sherry has also represented the United States on the international stage as a national team member for Team USA and a 1992 World Cup champion. Off the field, Sherry supported softball athletes since 1999 when she built and began operating the largest training facility in the world of sport, known as Club K. In addition to creating instructional DVDs and software to assist softball players in perfecting their craft, Sherry is the author of the book Softball Pitching Edge. She is also an inventor and patent holder of the SpinRight Spinner, a device that teaches correct spin on both pitch delivery for softball and baseball. Sherry has been a color commentator covering NCAA softball for ESPN and previously commentated for Fox Sports, Comcast Sports, the Yes Network, and MLB Network. In her current role, Sherry is the vice president and executive producer for broadcast distribution at Athletes Unlimited. Athletes Unlimited is an organization that aims to empower athletes as leaders, promote inclusive ownership, focus on long-term financial and personal well-being of athletes, and bring fans closer to the game by innovating on and off the field. We're incredibly grateful to have Sherry as a guest on the podcast, and she has amazing insights on what it takes to succeed in the sports industry. So we hope you all enjoy Adam's interview with Sherry Kempf. Welcome to the Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With us today is Sherry Kempf. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. We want to start off with the question we always start off with our guests. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background so our audience can learn a little bit more about you? Yeah, sure. So I grew up playing sports, um, grew up before, um, I guess, when I was really young, starting out, I would say below 10, um, there weren't organized sports options for girls. Um, So I really just hung around kind of a brother that's three and a half years older than me. And I kind of hung around and did what he did which actually ended up serving me very well um, to grow up in an environment with, with boys and to learn to compete in the way that, that they compete, um, I think has always been helpful. But um, so I played sports my whole life. I uh, went to college on a scholarship to play softball. I also uh, played basketball in college. Um, After college, I played um, at that time, there was no professional softball Um, there. There was no professional basketball either, but there was um, a very high level of amateur softball. And I played for kind of the 
dream team organization. It was the Ray Bestis Breakouts uh, out of Stratford, Connecticut. And I um, got to play for them, uh, started playing for them at 27, actually. Uh, played for the national team at 30 years old and uh, coached a little bit of college, four years uh, of Division One college softball, and then started my own business um, teaching. I taught pitching and had a um, Various facilities ended up in a 30,000 square feet um, of space um, for softball training, um, wrote a book on it, um, did wrote software on it, um, did a lot of research in the area of pitching and young girls and just human movement in general with pitching. Um, and then I got into broadcasting. Um, did that for 20 years, covered um, professional softball and also um, the NCAA tournament and just NCAA as it started to grow um, more college games and it ultimately covered the Women's College World Series for ESPN. I uh, did that for eight years um, at the series and then um, got became commissioner of the National Pro Fast Pitch League, um, which it actually started in 2004 as the National Pro Fast Pitch League. I became the commissioner in 2007 and did that to, until 2020 um, when I left to um, join Athletes Unlimited, which is where I am um, right now. So with Athletes Unlimited, I'm the director of sport for softball. And I also um, oversee our all of our broadcast production across all four sports. There's a lot there I, we wanted to cover and talk about. But first thing is, you know, obviously, as my as a lot of listeners know, I started my own company. But what was the impetus for starting your own, you know, starting your own organization, starting your own venture, and then marrying all the things that you talked about, whether it's authorship, software writing, what was the impetus and why did you decide to start your own enterprise? It's a great question. I don't think anyone has ever asked me, but the impetus for <laughs> it was um, to keep playing. So um, our actually a lot of female athletes are still in that position today where you have to have a real job where you really make your money. And at that time, I was considered playing amateur softball. So I still wanted to play and I needed something with the flexibility um, to allow me to do that. I had a teammate in um, St. Louis who had started teaching pitching and she said, Cherry, you should teach pitching. And, um, I actually lived in Nashville. I still do, um, Nashville, Tennessee. And at that time, some of the high schools were still playing slow pitch. Um, so I thought really? that it wouldn't take off down here, but it, it really did. Um, and then when I started teaching, um, I really got into it, um, because I wanted to make sure I was kind of, um, I was more natural at pitching. I did not have a pitching coach ever. Um, so I picked it up a lot. Um, so there were things that I were, was fortunate enough to be able to do effectively that I wasn't sure why. Um, so I wanted to be able to help someone who couldn't um, do it yet. But if you could just teach, if, you know, if I could be a good teacher, um, I could help them. So that's why I got into um, the rest of it. And I, I don't know if this is totally related, but obviously teaching is about communication. Is that, was that the impetus to jump into broadcasting or is that just 
uh, kind of a good opportunity. No, I think just that I like to talk was an asset. <laughs> <laughs> the person who called me was Sandy Pearsall. She was the head coach at Louisville at the time. She goes, you know, we want to make sure that this person is going to talk. And I go, well, that's not going to be your problem. You might want to have a, you know, signal to get me to stop talking, but um, which you might also need. But um, I um, think that um, really just it was helpful that I had an in-depth knowledge about um, pitching because when I first, um, so I worked for Fox for five years covering the SEC before I was contacted by ESPN. And when I was first contacted by ESPN, the coordinating producer that called me said, we're going to have a non-tournament regular season game this year. A, she said, A, non-tournament. Now there are this yeah. year probably knocking on the door of 2000 games just on the SEC and ESPN networks. So, it, you know, it, it's moved fast. And so I think someone uh, that could break down the fascination of pitching for a growing audience and, um I guess talk um, was helpful at that time. Yeah, that's actually a question I was potentially going to talk about later, but it's good to bring up now is the evolution, particularly in the growth of popularity of softball on television. You talk about kind of where it was when you started, which is you already started talking about it, and kind of the evolution. You know, you talked about the going from a game to two thousand games, but now softball is some of the highest. You know, even at times, I think now even more high, highly rated than men's uh, baseball and some other you know core assets on ESPN. So, can you talk about kind of the evolution? What have you seen, and why do you think there's been such a rise in interest in women's softball on television? Yeah, so I think that, you know, in 1982, I think is when ESPN started covering it and they covered the finals of the Women's College World Series. There was one final game and now there's versus a it's a final series. It's a best of three now. So once it gets down to two teams, but there was one game and it was taped and delayed until like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. That's when it came on. But I think what started happening was and you know we knew this i knew this from playing way before you're talking about television if you would invite somebody if we would go to a town and we were playing there and maybe you have a distant relative or a friend and you're like hey we're in town um you know my family would be like cherry's gonna play softball and so somebody you know that person would come out and it was amazing to watch them fall in love with the game and th and they would come for all the games then you know they were stuck they were a fan so i think it there is a uh, an incredible fascination with the motion of pitching first of all that you can make your arm go backwards that yeah. fast and hit a spot that's this big you know and i think that captivates people and then the game itself is just put together really well. It's played in a compact nature. There's a lot of action. It's quick. There's opportunities for um, the women to really excel and show off talent. So you get the diving catches, you get the climb the fence. It's in an appropriate size venue and an appropriate size field and competition surface. And then you have these incredibly talented women. So 
I think it was a how can it fail? Um, and I think the only reason it has taken it so long to make its mark, and you were mentioning viewership, I've seen some staggering viewership, over a half million Last week, ESPN made a late decision to put um, the uh, Oklahoma-Oklahoma State game on, that rivalry. Mm -hmm. They put all three games of the series, and one of them was over a half million. It's a regular season game that was put on late, and it's it's blowing the place up in ratings. So I think the only reason it's taken so long is because it's it still hasn't reached the level of promotion that we would all like to see it reach. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that because I think it, in the context of Athletes Unlimited, I think we want to talk about that in a little bit more detail. But before we get to that, just to uh, tie the bow off on your career trajectory. So you you, you mentioned moving to the, to the National Fast Pitch uh, Softball League as commissioner. When did you decide and how did you decide to make or to take on that responsibility and take on that role? Um, you know, I was called, I was broadcasting. So I took a couple gigs one year. There was a team in New York. They were called the New York, New Jersey juggernaut. Um, they had a, I think a 16 game deal on the yes network. So I was the analyst for that. Um, I, there were some ESPN games in maybe Oh five, Oh six that I was able to call with, um, first time I ever met Eric Collins, which was, a it's been a lifelong friendship and a really, really cool. <laughs> Cool thing to work together in a different capacity, but we got to work together on that. We did the, um, we called the bound for Beijing, some of the tour stops in 08, um, for ESPN. So I had called, um, some professional softball and had seen the league a little bit. And again, I kind of, you know, was talking about some things like this could be better. This could be better. And they hadn't had a commissioner. So, um, one of the owners in Chicago, um, asked me if I would consider doing that. And so I had been teaching lessons a long time and I think that has a lifespan, mm -hmm. uh, really. And so I had done a lot in that area and kind of, you know, written the book, written the software and, and sent a lot of kids to college and had that, you know, rewarding experience, but I was kind of ready um, for a new challenge. So that's how I um, kind of transitioned into the national pro fast pitch league. And what were some of the things that you were taking on as, as the commissioner, what were you looking at? I mean, you were talking about promoting, maybe this is a good time to bring up promotion. How, how are you thinking about promotion, engaging with fans, engaging with different constituents in terms to try to build and grow the league? Well, what I, I think the league just wasn't looking at television. They weren't, I remember way back when in the early days of calling games for television, even that first experience that I did, it was Sandy Pearsall had called me to call to do the conference USA championship and they had some rain. And one of the more popular coaches, hall of fame coach, they were sort of, you know, everybody was up in arms because the game was delayed and people were scurrying about and they were trying to coordinate to get this game another window to be on television. And I remember this hall of fame coach saying, this isn't about TV. This is about softball. And I thought to myself, you, that's, that's small minded, you know, no, it's TV. That's going to elevate this thing for you. And so um, I think that when you, when you look at that whole process and you think to yourself, um, 
you know, there has to be vision. You have to understand what's, you know, what's going to take you there. And when I first joined um, the NPF, they weren't seeing that. So the schedule wasn't balanced. So there was a team in Rockford, Illinois, and there was a team in Chicago, Illinois. They played each other 16 times. 16? One, of, yeah. one of them played Pennsylvania four times. One of them didn't play them at all because they couldn't afford to travel. One of them, you know, so they, they would play some teams this, they would play some teams a whole bunch if they were close enough. Uh, they were playing exhibition games against um, China, Team China or Holland uh, at the time, the Netherlands team, and they were counting those. So one team would play them and they would count in their league standing. So the very first thing was to even out the schedule. And if you're going to be in this league, you have to, you know, you're going to play everybody home and away. And you can decide how many times you want to play them, four, six, eight times. And, but you're going to do a homestand and away, and it's going to be equal. This is going to be balanced, and you're going to have a winner and a championship. There was no, um, the other thing that was kind of a hot button at the time that I realized was that everybody, if you watch TV, you were seeing events. What was growing? What has grown for a long time now? It's regular season. That's, um, that's you know, like I said, the Oklahoma-Oklahoma State games that rated so well. But what we gauged it on so long was the Women's College World Series. It was an event. Think about the All-Star Game. Think about the Super Bowl. They're events. And, and the other thing about those events are they're sellable. They, they come in a nice, neat little package. Here's our championship series. It's a total of eight games in one location in four days. We can value that and we can sell that. So what I wanted to do was create a championship, which there wasn't one. Um, there, was a, there was a trophy, but there was no build to that. There was no design to it. And then um, I wanted to uh, also uh, create an event around our college draft, uh, which we ended up doing in Nashville for six years at the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame, which was very cool um, event. So uh, we tried to do that, create those sellable um, assets and, and then just um, surround the regular season and balance that out. But so those are like big picture things that I was trying to do at the time. Um, and then just in terms of just work, it was everything because even at the end, when I left in 2020, the league office consisted of two full-time people, one of which was me. Um, and then we had, um, another person who was remote, who did all of our uh, graphics and design work, that type of thing. But, um, you know, unheard of um, how many hats people were wearing. So I think you're, you know, doing a little bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I guess you were used to that and doing a little bit of everything in terms of starting your own, you know, starting your own ventures, starting your own enterprise and obviously having that kind of experience. But it does sound like you know, we want to get to your next career stop, which is Athletes Unlimited. But it sounds like some of the things you were exploring at MPF did translate to Athletes Unlimited. So before we jump into that, though, can you just tell our listeners who may not be familiar with Athletes Unlimited what it is and how you got involved? And there's a cool story on the website about how you got involved as well on the Athletes Unlimited, which I encourage people to read. But Hopefully we'll hear more about it now as well. Yeah. So Athletes Unlimited is, is actually a network of professional sports leagues. Um, it is not 
um, gender specific and just it, it, when you see the, the the whole outline of the business itself, but we are in the women's professional sports space exclusively at the moment. We have uh, basketball, um, volleyball, softball, and lacrosse professional leagues in all four of those sports. It is a kind of a new um design of a professional sports league that people really aren't used to. Um, it was founded by uh, Jonathan Soros and John Patrickoff. And the thought behind it was to look at professional sports differently and to sort of reimagine and not be, um, you know, really obligated to be in that traditional space um, with the constraints that people sometimes deal with. So, um, the way it works is you go to one city, one location with a cluster of athletes that end up drafting into four teams um, each week. And they're, they, they're there for five weeks of competition. They usually go one week early to prepare and practice and train and everything like that. But the one thing that um, is really turned out really cool, and I have to say that at the beginning, I was just like, this is never going to work. This is a wild, crazy idea, but it's beautiful. You know, it turned out so, so great, but it's a leaderboard like you see in golf and tennis and NASCAR that, so in the championship season of softball, there's 60 players that go into Rosemont, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Those 60 players all go on a leaderboard, one to 60. And there's different things that move them up and down, individual stats, uh, MVPs, there's three each game, and then um, just wins. So in softball, it's inning wins and game wins move you up and down. And that's that actually has the most impact on the movement of the leaderboard. But each week, the top four players on that leaderboard are team captains, and they draft their teams. So there's a draft that happens every week. And so it is, uh, you know, you hear it for the first time, and at least I did. And, you know, you think of a lot of reasons that things can go wrong. Just because you're so programmed into how it's supposed to be. Um, But I'll tell you, we launched softball in 2020 in uh, August of 2020. And um, I I don't think Athletes Unlimited has slowed down yet um, in terms of just um, the enthusiasm and the momentum that it continues um, to build. And right out of the block, Adam, I was wrong, you know, right out of the block, (laughs) everything was, you know, that you thought wasn't going to be so cool or work well or um, did. And players loved it and they raved about it. And, 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 you know, social media loved it and raved about it. It's easy to understand. And then it's easy to follow along uh, with, and it's, you know, it's the players had to love it or it, you know, it is a, play it is a player focused player led organization so you would never want to um have the players doing things that they don't enjoy but they they love it can you talk about more about that the player component obviously the player driven the player led is that is one beyond the rules that you just said is a unique component of athletes unlimited can you talk about how the players have real kind of involvement and leadership in the organization 
Yes. So there's a what's called a player executive committee, and it's in each sport and it's five players on that committee and they represent the overall player group of the sport uh, in its entirety. They communicate back and forth. Those five women are on a call with their respective PECs and the CEO and oftentimes Jonathan Soros also. So John Padrakoff is a co-founder and our CEO. And Jonathan Soros is a co-founder, but very active in the organization. And so they have those calls um, and with other, uh, there's a director of sport in each sport and there's other folks that join the calls um, as, as needed. And each week they meet and talk about relevant issues and it's never really um, it's, it's exactly opposite of that structure that I was in before with uh, NPF, where it's just a commissioner, a person, and who is answering to uh, ownership, but then handing down and sort of sheriffing um, all the activities, um, totally different. So even though there are very talented people and and great vision in the company in general, um, everything is uh, not only uh, run by the players for approval, but a lot of times starts with them um, in terms of concepts and ideas and sometimes uh, lives with them entirely as a, as an example, um, it's our PEC that ultimately determines what players get contracts in the league. So no one else in the company is really saying, Hey, that's a player we want. And we're going to offer her a contract. It has to come through the PEC. So uh, we had our draft uh, week before last and it's, you know, the PEC handed us a list of 13 players that said, who's, you know, here's who we're drafting ultimately. So, and that's how it went. So I think that um, players uh, have a huge uh, contribution and huge voice um, in the company operation overall. You mentioned the fan response just in general about the league, but what has the fan response been both in, in more detail about the league, but also this component of the league, which is so fundamentally different than the way most professional sports like the athlete involvement, the athlete ownership, the athletes deciding which other players can be drafted. What do you think the response or what have you seen the response been to the way that the league is structured? I think, uh, first of all, I don't think uh, a lot of fans understand the degree to which players are involved. I think, um, they understand it generally, but I don't think they necessarily know the whole day to day. But I think um, I think fans really appreciate it. They they kind of get that from the players. Hey, we love this. We love the structure, and we try to make sure that the players have opportunities to uh, be seen and and be heard. But we, you know, we heard a lot, probably in basketball, because basketball has a direct comparison um, to be able to make. But we heard a lot just on the broadcast themselves about how much they enjoyed learning about the players and um, hearing from the players in, you know, what they care about from them or what they're doing from them. So uh, that's a little different than just the the contribution to the operation of the company overall. Um, but it's it's sort of along the same vein and, and it seems to be real important and received well um, from fans. 
And one of the other things that you and I've talked about uh, previously is the partners, right? And and the partners of the league. So similarly, what has been the response from partners to the league in terms of this level of athlete participation and then athletes unlimited generally, given how different it is as an organization compared to some other organizations? I think that there are, uh, I, I think what we believe is that there is a, a specific and tremendous um, synergy that can exist with partners that also have the same values um, as, as we do. And I think when we run into those types of companies and top of mind for me is Aspiration, um, who we're working with um, to become the very first carbon neutral professional sports league. But, um, you know, you, you, bump into each other and it's just like anything, you know, it's just like a, a, a social engagement sort of, you bump into somebody and you know, almost immediately that, that you click, that you have similar interests, you know, this could be a great friendship. And so I think that's what, um, those are the types of partners that we're looking for. And I think when those types of companies see us and totally understand who we are and what we stand for, um, I think it's refreshing to them too. Absolutely. And, and one other constituent that I wanted to ask about, which I referenced earlier, is you. You know, when you first approached Jonathan and John, you had an interesting first encounter with them. You talked about referencing the league, but can you talk about more about your first encounter with them and how that how then you became involved from there? Yes. So so John Patrickoff was the person who reached out to me uh, first and he reached out to me on an email and I got a lot of emails from people that said, you should do this or you should do that or um, I'd like to talk to you about a team. So he had reached out to me and I don't know what he exactly said, but I usually Googled someone to see, you know, really who they were and and what their interests might be. And so, you know, he's clearly, uh, you know, former president of the New York City Football Club and with the Tribeca Film Festival for over a decade. And so someone who I, you know, thought would be a good conversation to have, um, cause I was always looking to grow the NPF itself. So, um, I called him and he, um, started just talking. And at that time, I think in his mind and in Jonathan's mind, I believe that they believed they were going to launch athletes unlimited in hockey in the space of hockey. Um, that was the conversation. And, um, so that was, I think what they had explored most. And, um, you know, like I always say, you know, I, I shot a thousand holes in it. John was saying, we're thinking about maybe we'll do this and maybe we'll bring all athletes. And it had a different name at that time. And, and he said, um, you know, I said, that'll never work. You know, you, it's just not going to work with softball. A pitcher has to have a catcher and this, they can't switch all the time. And um, I just kept kind of shaking my head. Um, but, you know, I, I'll tell you from point one, I enjoyed talking with him. Um, he, I thought they had some good ideas and I thought regardless that it was going to be another opportunity for our players to make money playing softball professionally. And the one thing that John Patrickoff did and said, and I tell people this, that's, that struck me right away was that everyone always wanted to take us down at the MPF. And, you know, we were trying to make lemonade out of lemons every single day and still you know, people for some reason or another wanted to take us down. And it was one of the things that John said right away. 
we don't want to crush the NPF. We want to help the NPF. We want you to survive and thrive. We want to be alongside you if we did come in in the sport of softball. But what he was really asking was just, what did I think about softball? Did I think it had a future and was it worth it? And in my mind, I'm thinking eventually, let's say it took me 24 hours, right? These guys have to take softball. Softball has to be one of the sports they do because that's the best thing that could happen for these women that are playing in the MPF. And so um, that's what I did. I, I initially tried to sell them an NPF team. It's why I went to New York, but um, they, you know, th thank goodness they, they didn't bite on that, but they were really committed to the model. They, they were far enough along in the model. And I think Jonathan um, really um, loved uh, the new concept of sort of reimagining uh, professional sport. So um, it ended up the way everything fell. Um, I just sort of committed myself. I wanted to make it easy. Uh, I wanted to make softball easy for them. Um, we ended up with the folks at Rosemont who are amazing and sort of had the same goal, I think. And it ended up that softball was the first sport that we launched. You know, being entrepreneurial, whether it's your own organization, whether it's through NPF, whether it's through Athletes Limited, it seems to be a consistent theme. And you've done it across a variety of different um, industries and job types. But what would you say kind of for you? I don't know if you can pick one, but A, what was your most satisfying professional experience so far? And B, how, how would you say entrepreneurship or being entrepreneurial has impacted your career to date? Uh, well, I think that, but there's no question that Athletes Unlimited is the most satisfying professional experience. It's the most impactful with, without a doubt. I don't think that people realize what's happening yet, that for professional sports leagues, for women's team sports launched within an 18 month period. Right. And that's unbelievable and unprecedented and historical. Absolutely. And so it is the, uh, before we started, I said, when I was doing the pitch to softball players to come do this, I said, this is the most significant move in women's professional sports since the NBA really put their arm around with enthusiasm, thanks to David Sternberg, and launched the WNBA with fervor and support. And that was notable. And so I said that until we launched. And then right after that went with volleyball. And I said, this, this tops it because this isn't one league for, for this group of women, it's four leagues in four sports. And with really, I think, you know, you'll see continued. I mean, we're getting ready to expand softball in a month. We, we launch AUX. So um, I think it's significant. Um, and Athletes Unlimited is sort of a juggernaut in itself, it feels like. Um, there's just a there's a lot of momentum. Um, I think women's sports are in, a, in the right place at the right time um, for something like this. Um, but I will tell you, it's 
It's staggering. It's impressive. It's sometimes unbelievable. But what the success of Athletes Unlimited is not accidental and it's not luck. It is a very intentional plan um, by Jonathan Soros and John Patrickoff, who led the way and continue to lead the way. So um, I think that's extremely rewarding. The only other thing that I will say, Adam, in sort of in hindsight, the NPF was tough. Um, it was, a, it, like I said, it was a very small group of people and there were always a lot of people working against, against it. But I do appreciate the work that that small, really positive group of people put into the league um, to sustain it for so long. Uh, you know, it started, that league really started uh, in 04 and went through 2020 to hit the pandemic. And that was, that was the end. So, but, you know, uh, that was a great run. It was a 17 year run um, for professional softball. And it was, I used to tell people uphill backwards in a snowstorm. And, but to be out of that, be out of that, I'm a Missouri girl. So I've actually done that. And it's really hard, (laughs) miserable, but, um, but I will tell you that, um, the farther I get away from that, um, that it is, that is also a, a rewarding, um, aspect, I think, and something that, that I'm proud of in spite of the difficulty. And I, the only reason I say that is not for me, but for other people that might listen to this right now and be in that tough situation um, that, that you could still be doing a lot of uh, a really good thing sometimes when it's, when it seems the hardest. And speaking of tough situations, um, you mentioned the pandemic and obviously the athletes unlimited launched in you know August of 2020, which is uh, still in the midst of the, you know, the growth of the pandemic. So talk about what was the impact of the pandemic on the business um, and how is the, you know, what have you learned or what are the learnings you've taken away uh, from how the pandemic potentially has impacted the business? Well, athletes unlimited handled the pandemic, um, Beautifully, as 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 well as anyone could handle it, and it. I'll tell you that by the time COVID really took a hold of people, and you realized it was a thing, I had already bought in on Athletes Unlimited. I was already, you know, thrilled every single moment seeing what I thought was the potential of this company. And so it was, it was really um, a gut punch to think "Ah, this is it, you know, this is going to kill this amazing idea. And, and this will be the end of it because I've seen a lot of people get enthusiastic for a minute and then, you know, they're done, they're done with it. Um, But really from, from point one, um, the mentality of our core group, it was um, Jonathan Soros, John Patrickoff, Anna Drucker, who's our um, director at that time of finance and operation. Now she's a VP of finance and operations. But, you know, that core group really just, you know, tightened up the seatbelt. And, and, and I, you know, Jonathan, just right away, what is it going to take what is, you know, I think everybody sort of looked at him and to see what are we going to do? And basically it was a, what does it take? And right away, Anna immersed herself with the folks at Johns Hopkins to figure out how do we bring these at softball that year, the first year was 56 instead of 60. How do we bring these 56 women 
into one place and keep them safe, keep them from getting COVID and keep this, keep the league from ending. And uh, we laid it out and executed it. Um, And it wasn't, again, wasn't easy, but it was, it happened beautifully. No fans pulled it off. Um, Whatever it was, three, four months later, we went to Dallas. We did the exact same thing with volleyball. Um, We called it um, being uh, in a shield rather than a bubble because the, uh, the hotel was off site. So they did have to stay in a hotel you know, publicly and then travel to the venue, but very limited. Basketball was still limited. We were still, we just finished uh, volleyball last. Um, We just finished it in April and um, we're still testing every week. Um, So, uh, and I would anticipate you're going to see that in AUX softball um, coming in June. So, but we've never had to postpone a game. Um, you know, knock on wood. And, uh, and we, although we, we have had some incidents, um, uh, throughout, it's never, um, been something that was particularly, um, dangerous for a lot of people. And what would you say would be takeaways? You know, obviously there's can, there have been spikes and different spikes in the pandemic where things seem to have been receding and come back. And, but from your perspective, what are long, are there things that you would take away from or lessons learned from the pandemic that you think will apply to the future of the business, hopefully once the pandemic fully recedes and that would continue, you know, are there lessons learned from fan engagement, audience engagement, media promotion that you've learned that you think will be applicable and are accelerated because of the pandemic? Well, I think we came out really strong with our broadcast production from point one, because we knew no one was going to see us in person. So we prioritized that and we prioritized every game where I don't think, you know, we went 30 games in softball right out, right out of the box. Then we went 30 games in volleyball and, you know, you could, talk about some other options that certainly would have been uh, less expensive um, models if you knew that people could, could, you know, absorb it other ways, but we knew that that couldn't. So I think that's one. Um, I would think just a takeaway from us internally is, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to challenge the universe or anything, but I mean, I think we should internally, um, feel confident that we were able to hit a very large problem before we were even had our legs under us and, and come out of it successful. And I think that sort of, you know, showed the strength of the, of the core right away. And then, you know, you know, you have to have cooperation, our players bought in our facilitators bought in and our staff, um, bought into it. So it was a really kind of a, you know, team effort right off the bat that felt real good to, to a lot of people, I think. We're getting towards the end of time. So we want to make sure we ask a question that we ask all of our guests, which is we have a lot of students who listen to the podcast. This is obviously a podcast for students who are looking to enter or in part looking to this is a podcast for students looking to enter the sports industry. What would you say from your perspective as a leader and now as, as a director at Athletes Limited, if somebody were to apply for a job or a role with your organization, what are the qualities you look for? What do you think differentiates candidates as they're looking to work in organizations like Athletes Unlimited or working to enter the sports industry more generally? Uh, I think um, that I, I always sort of answer this the same way, even if it's more general and not 
just pointed at Athletes Unlimited. But I think that a lot of people um, believe that the sports entertainment industry is a game. Like it's going to be like playing the game. You love baseball. So you want to be in minor league baseball, go, go walk a week in somebody's shoes in minor league baseball. They're working their tails off. They're working long hours. They aren't getting days off and you know, day after day after day. And I think hustle always impresses me. I don't care where you are, what you're doing. I think if you hustle, um, it makes up for a shortcoming here and there. It makes certainly makes up for mistakes. Um, and I think people that, so I think people that are willing and able to work hard um, and know, you know, know that, um, that that's what this takes. And then I think just people that are resourceful, like I can't, there are people whose approach to a question is to explain to you why it won't work. And I want people that are going to figure out why it can. Um, There's usually an answer in there. So, and I don't care if I'm saying, hey, could we, you know, could we put a graphic up the side of the screen? There are people who are going to say, no, you can't do that. That can be done. And then there's one guy or one gal that's going to say, I'll tell you what, if you did this and this and this, it would work that way. Um, So, I think hustle and, you know, just ingenuity, enthusiasm, and just a willingness um, and an ability to put the time in. Sounds like your entrepreneurial spirit is coming back out again. Like <laughs> those are things that would definitely be the same thing as usually entrepreneurs say, why can't we do something as opposed to, you know, or try to figure out a way to do something as opposed to saying, why can't you do something? So I think it's definitely a good lesson. Definitely a good lesson learned. Definitely. I think a good way to end the podcast. So Sherry, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I know our audience will get a lot out of what you had to say. Right. You're welcome. Thanks a lot for having me and letting me talk for a while. <laughs> no problem. And thanks for talking as much as you did. 